God's Word is a gift to us in many ways. It tells us of our predicament as a human race and how we may be saved or rescued from this predicament. It tells us that there's something wrong with this world, there's something wrong with us, and the thing that is wrong is sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and because of Adam's sin, all of mankind became guilty and corrupt in Him. And even the ground was cursed because of Him. But the Scripture tells us that God appointed a second representative of mankind, like the first Adam, in that He acted not for Himself only, but also for others. But unlike the first Adam, in that the second Adam actually did what he was supposed to do. And met the the standards of God. And obeyed the precepts of God on behalf of all those whom he represented. And so, this second Adam is Christ Jesus. By his righteous life, all who are in him are counted as righteous. And by his substitutionary death on the cross, those who are in him have our sins atoned for. And as we looked at very recently, uncursed is the ground because of this second Adam, Christ Jesus. It is a gift to have the Word of God which tells us about this gospel, this good news, what God has done for us. Part of what we find in the Scripture is gospel, an announcement not about what we must do, but about what God has done for us. The Word of God also tells us, however, how we ought to live, what we ought to do. Some of what is in the Bible is gospel, and some of what is in the Bible is law, it's precept, is commandment, instruction. It is this second aspect which is particularly in view in Psalm 119, verse 105. It's not a passage that tells us about the gospel and what God has done for us. It's a passage that teaches us that God's Word will be a guide to us, will instruct us as we make our way through this life, and that it will help us know what we ought to do. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, according to Psalm 119, verse 105, which we are studying tonight. We will consider the simple teaching of this verse tonight. It will just take up the totality of our time. And we're just going to start with the obvious point that light is of no use to a blind man, nor is light of any use to one who neglects to use it rightly. It's no defect of light when a man can't see it. If a person is blind, we, we would not say, well, look how insufficient the noonday sun is. This man can't even see where he's going because of a defect in the sun. Of course, we would never say that. We recognize that when a man can't walk according to the light of the noonday sun, it's not a defect in the light, but it's a defect in the man's perception. There is an objective light cast upon this physical world by the sun and the sky. Likewise, there is an objective light cast upon the human race by the Word of God. If a man does not perceive it, 
it's no defect in the light, but a defect in his perception. Scripture is useful no matter whether someone is able to perceive its usefulness or not. We must come to perceive and to use the light that God gives us. In the first place, this is God's doing. God gives us eyes to see and perceive the usefulness of Scripture to us. He brings us to a point where before which the Scripture was an irrelevant book to us and after which we, we find it tremendously valuable. Very, very important to us. I remember I asked my dad once, if the house was burning down, what would you grab? He said, my Bible. And I said, I, I was younger at the time, I said, why would you do that? There's Bibles on every device and you know, every iPad and it's on the internet and you could just go grab another Bible. <laughs> but he was, I think, making the point to me that the Word of God is precious and is precious to him. And it truly is the most valuable thing in our house, notwithstanding the fact that you could buy another copy. The scripture is truly the most valuable thing in our house. And uh, in, in that sense would be the thing that we ought to grab from a burning house. It's God who changes our mind about this. From, from scoffing and mocking. We sang Psalm 1 earlier, which begins like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. There are people whose counsel differs from Scripture. There are people whose lifestyle runs against Scripture. There are people who scoff at Scripture. And we would be among them, but for the grace of God. But God gives us spiritual sight such that we're no longer blind to the sun, which is objectively casting light upon our path, but we come to see and appreciate the light. As a blind man who received his sight would come to appreciate the light that is, has been objectively cast upon his path all along. Now that God has opened up our eyes, however, on an ongoing basis, we have a responsibility to keep the light shining on the path. I'm going to refer several times tonight to what I would call a flashlight, and I've been told Bajans would call a torchlight. So I will try to say torchlight uh, as we go. But if I say flashlight, I trust that you will bear in mind what I mean. I don't know if you have ever noticed and observed the difference between a grown-up walking with a torchlight and a child walking with a torchlight. When a, when a grown-up walks with one, they tend to keep it straight on the path. It doesn't swing all around, it doesn't veer here and there, it just grows on the path, and the grown-up walks. With a kid, the light shines in every direction. Now it's on the path, now it's in the tops of the trees, now it's on the moon, now it's back on the path, then it starts spinning in circles, then all of a sudden it's underneath the face, making a goblin face or a ghoul face or whatever. This is the way children use lights. Now. 
the light, again, is not defective. There is no problem with the torch light. The problem is with the use of it. If you don't shine it on the path, it has no use to you. Not because it is useless, but because you're not using it properly. The point that I'm making here, light is of no use to a blind man, nor one who neglects to use it rightly. We must settle in our minds once we have come to realize that this book really is a light, really is a lamp. Once God has done that for us, and we perceive value in this book, in this revelation from God, we must settle in our minds that we will use it rightly, that we will shine it on our path, that we won't point it at the moon, that we won't make funny faces by putting it below our chin, but we will use it the way it was intended to be used by shining it upon our path. Even in the presence of competing guides. Now, there are going to be lots of other voices, so to speak, telling you where next to put your foot. There are going to be competing voices telling you, this is the way, walk in it. Of course, we can think most primarily, as opposed to following the path that God has set before us, we can think of other religions. And they tell you, no, 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 don't follow that man from Galilee. His path leads nowhere. Follow this other God, or this other teacher, or this other guru, or whatever. This is the path to enlightenment. This is the path to Zen. This is the path to whatever it may be, right? Nirvana, paradise, whatever. Of course, there are going to be the competing guides of other religions, but we must continue to set the Word of God before us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Then you will have non-religious, neutral sources or voices speaking to us. This is the path walking it. They'll say, we're not, we're not another religion. We're just common sense, facts-based, realists. This is the way, walking it. Don't follow that superstitious stuff. Don't follow that fantasy about Jesus and His resurrection and the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. We know that that's just ancient mythology. It's kind of inspiring in its own way, but it's a work of fiction. Follow this path instead or, or put your foot here next or whatever. There's going to be not only the competing guides of other religions, but there's going to be non-religious and, and I, you know, I put that in quotes neutral sources. They're not really neutral, of course, are they? But they, they claim to be, and they tell you that they're not inviting you to another religion. But let's be frank, even the irreligious or the non-religious dogma is dogma. And it is religiously loaded with significance. To say that there is no God is a religious statement, isn't it? It's a statement pertaining to matters of religion. 
then of course there are going to be friends and family members and they might not have a cohesive coherent system the way that another religion might they just have their whims and their preferences and their worldviews and whatever and they want to foist these on you this is what you should do this is the decision you make this is how you should spend your Sundays this is how you should spend your holidays this is how you should spend your money this is what you should do with your time this is what you should do with your energy don't waste your life doing this, that, or the other thing. Do this instead. Friends and family members will always be trying to sh shine their light, so to speak, upon your path. This is what you should be doing. And there are traditions. This is the way Barbadians have done this for however long. This is the way our family has done this for however long. <clears throat> Whatever tradition it might be, this is the traditional way. Therefore, this is what you ought to do. So there are, you, you can see, you're picking up what I'm saying. There are lots of different voices speaking to you about how you should walk, where you should go, where next to put your foot. This is the path, walk in it. There's all of these competing voices telling you how to live. And then there's the inner voice, if I can put it that way, of your own feelings. I feel like this is what I should do. This is what it feels like I should be doing at this time. You'll hear people say, well, you know, I don't really feel convicted about this. You talk to them about how their life needs to change to be ordered more according to God's word. And they say, well, I don't really feel convicted about that. Or when people are struggling a lot of times when people are struggling with depression or uh, anxiety or, or various other real and difficult ailments, a lot of times they don't feel like doing the things that they really need to be doing and ought to be doing. And they use their feelings as their guide. So how they live is according to their feelings. Their feelings tell them, Going to church is not a good idea. Calling a friend is not a good idea. Uh, so on and so forth. And they let this guide them. I want to point out on this point that our feelings really are more like the speedometer in our car more so than the GPS of our car. So, the speedometer just tells you how fast you're going. In other words, it tells you what is happening. It doesn't tell you what ought to be happening. Your speedometer doesn't tell you to speed up or slow down. It doesn't tell you to turn left or turn right. It just reads out to you something that is happening. The GPS, on the other hand, tells you in 80 feet or 150 meters or whatever, turn left. Stay, stay on this road and at the next light, turn right. The GPS tells you what you should be doing. Many of us treat our feelings more like a GPS than like a speedometer or whatever other gauge. Our feelings help us by telling us what's happening in our hearts. But our feelings don't tell us what ought 
to be happening in our hearts or how we ought to live. So, for example, let's say I feel super angry. The feeling of anger helps me understand something of what is going on in my heart and in my mind. But the anger that I feel shouldn't be my guide as to what is the next thing that I should do. We need to realize that feelings are designed by God to be more like gauges than guides. And we need to recognize that feelings are on the list of competing voices, which tell us where next to put our foot as we walk through this life. There are all of these other lights, so to speak, that want to shine on our path and tell us how we ought to live. We need to resolve in our mind not other holy books, our lamps to our feet, and lights to our path. We need to resolve not political pundits or the neutral science teacher, non-religious philosopher, whatever, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We need to resolve not my friends are a light to my path or a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need to resolve not my family is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need to resolve not tradition is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need to resolve not even feelings, not even my own feelings are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When it comes to how should I live, what should I be doing with my time, with my energy, with my finances, with my priorities, with my goals, what are these going to be shaped by? Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need to resolve, settle in our minds that this is a lamp and a light, and we need to resolve to use this light to guide our steps, to put the flashlight in front of us on the path, to keep it there so that we can see where we need to walk, what we need to be doing, even in the presence of competing guides. Now let's talk for a moment about how the light helps us. Well, the most straightforward way that the light helps us is it gives us explicit commands. We could think, for example, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So if someone says, hey, bow down to this statue and worship it, we should say, oh, no, I should not, I should not do that. Because God says in His Word, you shall have no other gods before me. If your neighbor's wife or husband tries to seduce you, you should say, well, no, the Bible says you shall not commit adultery. If you get really angry and you want to kill someone, you should not do it because the Bible says you shall not murder. Right? The most straightforward way that the scripture guides us is in terms of explicit commands. 
this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. That's very obvious. It's not, it's not rocket science. Nobody is left wondering whether God approves of idolatry or covetousness or theft or whatever else because God has spoken very explicitly and very directly to that. We would do well to order our steps by the explicit commands of God. And though we, we might laugh about the examples I just gave because they're so obvious. Well, let's be honest, we still break these things. And people actually do murder. People actually do bow down to statues. People actually do commit adultery. People actually do steal. Right? So we would do well at the most basic level, at least to bring our lives in line with the explicit commands of the Bible. Even the most novice Christian could start and would be helped by starting with the explicit commands. At the very least, I will do what the Bible explicitly tells me I must do, and I will not do what the Bible explicitly tells me I must not do. That's a really great place to start. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, most basically in terms of explicit commands. This is the easiest place to start with teaching our children, making disciples of our little children. My sons and I had a conversation about casinos, uh, I think it was the week before last, and that's a little more of a complex conversation than, for example, thou shalt not steal, right? Or uh, you shall have no other gods before me. It's easy to explain to our kids, and it's a good place to start with our kids, with the explicit commands of God, and help them at least develop a simple framework for this is what is God requires of us, and this is what God forbids, and at least start them there and give them that basic picture. Then, there are principles to be applied. So there are explicit commands, and then there are principles to be applied. Again, we could actually look at the Ten Commandments as examples here. Because when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, it does mean we shouldn't bow down to statues of wood or stone and worship them. But it also means that money shouldn't be more important to us than God. And it also means that our career shouldn't be more important to us than God, or the prestige that comes from it, or our reputation, or whatever. So, it's not only an explicit command, but as we come to understand the commandments at a deeper level, we realize what Jesus teaches us, that whoever even looks at a woman lustfully has already broken the commandment pertaining to adultery. So as we learn the scriptures more and more, and as we develop in the Christian life, we come to see that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path at another level above and beyond simply the explicit commands. God's word also gives us principles to be applied. We could think, like I say, of working out the principles of the Ten Commandments, like honor your father and mother. Well, we know, therefore, that we shouldn't curse our father and mother or intentionally disrespect them. But what does it mean to honor them? It's a principle that we got to work out and apply. We can think also of the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your neighbor as yourself. How do we work that out in practice? These are 
principles to be applied. We know that we should love God. What does that look like? What could that look like in my life? I know that I should love my neighbor. What does that look like? What could that look like in my life? And we work that out. Here's another example, which is typical of wisdom literature, which doesn't give us explicit commands so much as principles to be applied. I mentioned this just by way of example. Proverbs 28, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So this is not an explicit command. This is a principle to be applied. What does it mean to work your land? Do I need to go plant seeds in my yard? Is that what I need to do in response to this? What is a worthless pursuit? Is this retraining for this particular new skill a worthless pursuit? Or would this open up a profitable opportunity for, to generate more income for my family? Is this a worthless pursuit or not? <laughs> Working your land might look like Working at a desk, at a computer, it might look like serving uh, as a flight attendant on a plane or fixing broken pipes or something like this. Working your land isn't to be understood woodenly and we have to evaluate what are worthless pursuits and what are worthwhile pursuits. But there is this principle here that hard work leads to plenty of bread and there are such things as worthless pursuits which lead to plenty of another thing, poverty. And so, again, there's explicit commands which are foundational and basic to the Christian life. But then God's word is a lamp and a light to us, how to live, by giving us principles that we need to think through and apply in our everyday lives. Then at another level, sort of above this, there are worldview questions which the scripture speaks to, but doesn't necessarily answer explicitly, nor does it even approach them in the same way as like, there's a verse about this. But it's more like we have to synthesize the teaching of scripture on a particular issue. So let me ask a couple of questions like this. How are we to interact? with secular subjects and repositories of knowledge such as science, philosophy, etc. Where's, where's a verse that tells you this is the Christian's relation to science? Where's a verse that tells you this is the Christian's relation to philosophy? Where is a verse that tells you this is the Christian's relation to mathematics or computer programming. There, we, we can't say that the scripture doesn't speak to these issues, but we also can't say that there are explicit commands with respect to the, these issues, nor even that there are principles articulated explicitly the same way as, for example, what I just read from Proverbs 28 about working your land. These are questions that we need to think a little bit more deeply about and try to synthesize the teaching of Scripture on these points. And they work their way out in questions like this. 
how do we work out these issues in educational choices for our children? How do we work out these issues in the medical choices that we make for ourselves? Or we could ask other questions like this. What is the relationship of church and state? So obviously there are explicit passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 which speak to the issue. But there are questions which come up and have been coming up, say even in this COVID situation, which is like, but surely the command to obey the government isn't absolute. There must be exceptions. What are the exceptions? When do they apply? Okay, we know we need to honor the emperor, but what does that look like when the emperor is overstepping? Is the emperor overstepping in this present case or not? Is this his rightful jurisdiction? You see how the scripture doesn't speak explicitly to these issues. It doesn't even approach them in terms of giving us a clear principle that we need to simply apply. Like there's no equivalent of Proverbs 28, 19 with respect to educational choices for our children or vaccines or government public health measures. You see, we can't say that the scripture doesn't speak to them. But we can't say that the scripture speaks to them as directly as the scripture speaks to other things. So, this is just a flyover. But I'm trying to show you in terms of how the word of God sheds light on our path and provides a lamp to our feet. At the most basic foundational level, there are explicit commandments. Do this. Don't do this. Then there's a principial level, like work your land and you'll have plenty of bread and don't waste your time on worthless pursuits. Then there are things that the scripture speaks to in a more general way that we really need to spend some time thinking through and meditating on and digesting in terms of how should we educate our children in the 21st century? How do we live and navigate our way through this COVID situation? where there's the intersection of church and state and public health issues and so on and so forth. God's word is relevant to all these things, but it speaks to all these things in a little bit of a different way. What we need to resolve is that even when the answers are not obvious, even when the process of figuring out where to go may not always be easy, we need to settle in our mind that this is a torchlight. We need to settle in our mind that the scripture will be our guide as we make our way through the COVID situation. As we figure out how to navigate educational choices for our children. As we figure out career decisions for ourselves. As we think about this opportunity that presents itself. Is this a worthless pursuit or is it a worthwhile pursuit? This is our light. This is our light. We can listen, sure, obviously, to other people. We can, we can take into account our family's perspective. We can take into account tradition. We can take into account our feelings and so on and so forth. But what we need to settle... What we need to resolve is that ultimately, at the end of the day, we will endeavor to be Bible people on all these issues. Never mind what CNN say, never mind what Fox is saying, never mind what your neighbors are saying, never mind what your uncle is saying, never mind what your parents are saying. 
Never mind what your best friend's saying. Never mind what your feelings are saying. At the end of the day, we're going to obey the explicit commands of Scripture. We're going to try to work out the principles that Scripture gives us wisely and, and as accurately in terms of its application as we can to our lives. And even when we come to more complex and less direct applications of Scripture to our lives, we're going to do our best to try to look at what the Scripture says about these subjects and then think through whatever the presenting issue is in a way that does justice to the perspective of Scripture. Even if you have a light, sometimes the best path forward is not always easy. But you're, you're still in a better spot to have a light than not. I'm, I might imagine if I was somewhere in St. Joseph in the middle of the night, on a cloudy night, with no light, trying to find my way where there's not street lights or the lights of houses nearby, I would have a really hard time. If I had a light, it doesn't guarantee that I'm never going to make a misstep. And sometimes when you shine the light, this way looks decent and that way looks decent. And you're not 100% sure. But the light is still a help and it's still a benefit to you. In a somewhat analogous way, the scripture is sometimes like that to us. That you come up on a complex issue where even Christians may differ. Some Christians go this way on it. Some Christians go this way on it. What we need to resolve is to commit to the process. Search the Scripture. Meditate on the Scripture. Think deeply about the Scripture. As best as you can, apply the Scripture to your life. What I really want to impress upon you tonight is not a set of conclusions. What I'm trying to impress upon you tonight is a process and a methodology for decision making. How do I live? What should I do? What is the best choice for me, for my family? What is going to serve as the lamp and the light to my path, to my family's path? What I want to press and drive home upon you tonight, and to you tonight, is that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and is a light to our path. May God help us as we endeavor to shine the light on our path and walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, make it, as we make it our aim to please Him.